turned out the tech nonprofits were the social safety net for many communities. Like if your school was closed, CommonLit was your classroom. If you couldn't get access to your doctor, you could go through teletherapy or telemedicine for one of our providers. It became the resource that when markets failed and didn't have a response for this, that tech nonprofits were able to step up. Welcome to Cause and Purpose, the show about leaders, innovators, and change agents working on the front lines to solve some of the world's greatest social challenges. I'm Mike Spear, and today's guest is the co-founder and executive director of Fast Forward, Shannon Farley. Fast Forward is a nonprofit accelerator that mobilizes the funding, resources, and support that technology nonprofits need to create positive impact at scale. They've worked with dozens of organizations, raised more than $275 million on behalf of their members, and impacted the lives of more than 88 million people. Shannon herself is a truly incredible person whose remarkable career has included mobilizing the largest network of millennial philanthropists ever, launching a MacArthur Award-winning juvenile justice reform program, and so much more. I've been a fan of the work that she and her colleagues at Fast Forward have been doing for years, and I couldn't be more excited to welcome her onto the program. Well, Shannon, thanks for joining us. I'm I'm really excited to, to talk to you. I've been following Fast Forward for a while. You know, think very highly of the work. Let's let's start with the beginning. I'm curious about you know how you grew up, your family life, your folks. You know who you were as a child, and what inspired you to pursue this career path. Yeah, thank you, and thank you for welcoming me here so warmly. I'm really excited to talk about the fun stuff I get to do in the world. So I grew up. Uh, my dad was an entrepreneur. He was a doctor who then went to business school and started what we would call now a biotech company, but those didn't exist yet. They called themselves genetic engineering companies, which is a little scary, but that was the name. And so (laughs) there were always like scientists and other entrepreneurs hanging out at our house. Like there were just like a pack of weirdos talking about big ideas and things that didn't exist yet and sort of making it up as they went along. And on the other side, my mom was a social worker. She was a hospice social worker. So having like those two things around definitely influenced how I thought like what a job was. You know, um, other kids that I grew up with, you know, had lawyers or doctor parents and they had like these very clear career paths for both of my parents. It wasn't always so clear. I feel like that kind of comfort with chaos is a really helpful baseline for entrepreneurship. Yeah, absolutely. My my dad sort of instilled the same thing about, you know, being your own boss and, and all those things uh, and sort of recognized that my path would be a little bit more difficult and meandering, uh, but that he was always very clear that it was much more rewarding than, you know, mm-hmm. it could potentially be more rewarding than if you just follow a straight line and as, as you put it, make widgets. You, you talked about sort of going down the path of entrepreneurship because uh, you're impatient. And you don't want to wait for other people to solve problems. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Where did that come from? Like, how is it manifested? I am deeply impatient. I think I have been the whole time. Uh, in fact, I was almost born on the Bay Bridge because I just like had to get out. So that is <laughs> how I showed up in the world. Um, and I'm also very optimistic about possibilities for this world. And when you combine the two together, just deep, impatient optimism the only thing you can do is be an entrepreneur and start building things to make the world better faster. That's an interesting way to put it. I really, I really like that. Can you elaborate on the the sense of urgency part of it? Well, I'll tell you the first time I thought it could be a job was, Mm. um, 
I was in college and I had a scholarship and like you could choose to check IDs at a library or you could go work for a local NGO. So that's what I did. I went to this local NGO and it was a women's shelter. Uh, people typically show up at a shelter like that really because they have no other options and they often come at night. And because I had a full course load, my shift was from 5 a.m. till 1 p.m. Most days then I would take classes later. But at 5 a.m., what's happened is someone has been in the shelter for like a couple of hours. They probably haven't slept. They've probably just experienced one of the worst nights of their life. And they're very scared. And my job at 5 a.m. was to help them go through paperwork. Like paperwork to get your kids in school, paperwork to get a new driver's license, paperwork uh, to change your identity with the state. And it just was maddening that the community's response to this terrible moment and the way we thought best to help these folks was to make them fill out binders of paperwork. And I just knew there had to be a better way. Like there just had to be a better way to make this a simpler, easier process. One thing that tech is really good at is paperwork. Right. Like it can streamline processes. It can make things just a little bit easier, a little less painful. And um, that was sort of the beginning of my career thinking about, like, how would you fix these painful processes? Mm. And tech is an obvious part of the solution. You know, we accept a number of teams now that that's exactly what they do. Upsolve.org mm. makes filing for bankruptcy very simple. It's like a couple of fo online forms and they process the whole bankruptcy for you. Immigrationhelp.org can help you process the entire immigration process without a lawyer. There's all these things that uh, policy systems have put up roadblocks to make it harder for particularly low income people to access the services they need. So what's exciting about what I do today is I'm solving the binder problem I had in the late 90s. <laughs> Is that a driving force behind Fast Forward, you know, solving some of those inefficiencies in public works? We believe we are best positioned to help when tech has an opportunity to have an outsized impact. So we do not have enough bankruptcy lawyers for low-income people in this country. We do not have enough public interest lawyers in general. Those people who need these services cannot be served by humans. And like, that's a great space for technology. If you can streamline the process, if you can make it more efficient, uh, it works for everyone. It works for the public interest lawyers so they can focus on the really complicated things. It works for the customers so that they're getting access to legal services quickly, efficiently, and getting the help they need. And it works for us as a society. We believe, particularly in the United States, that access to justice is a human right. And if we can help people secure those rights more quickly, it helps us all. I've heard you speak in other uh, formats about defund police. I mean, that's that seems like it's very much in, in the spirit of that movement as well. Yeah, I think that uh, policing and the criminal justice system is broken. I feel like we can all agree on that at this point. It would be hard even for a police officer to think that what's happening is working. And I'm very interested in how we can treat all citizens with dignity. Sometimes that involves technology. Like we have alums that uh, we the protesters is one of our alums. And what we, the protesters did that had never been done before was daylight the data on police shootings of civilians. That data was disaggregated. It was in all different places. It wasn't in the same format. They collected it, they aggregated it, and they made it visible in their police violence mapping tool. And it's incredible because you know, as somebody who's worked on criminal justice for most of my career, 
being able for the first time to visualize the real crisis that our criminal justice system um, is in at the moment was so helpful for advocates, for just citizens that were interested in it maybe for the first time, heard about it for the first time, and for policymakers, because there's real opportunity for action. When did you become first interested in criminal justice? Yeah, uh, I went to Catholic school and there was a nun, as, as lovely nuns always do, they came to my classroom and she was a prison minister. That's where what her ministry was. And she basically drew on the chalkboard, the panopticon, you know, Foucault's panopticon, and talked about how prisons are designed today. And the panopticon, you know, was developed in the 19th century, I believe, uh, and basically to spy on people. And it still works that way in prisons. And she was like, we have been dehumanizing our fellow citizens since prisons have been a thing. And there's other ways to do it. And that just became a refrain I heard over and over again, and I'd studied it. And then um, one of my first jobs was to work with a really a renowned civil rights attorney named James Bell to help start the W. Haywood Burns Institute. And that organization, uh, we worked on disproportionate minority confinement issues. Uh, what's interesting about it to me today in particular is that it was a data play. Like we basically like take all the data about why kids of color are locked up for things that white kids don't get locked up for, show people the data, and then you can change policies. Like, don't worry about hearts and minds. You need the data first. The hearts and minds will come. And that's one of the like really powerful things about data. And uh, a lot of the organizations we fund today are making data visible as a tool for social justice. I feel like that's inverted relative to how most organizations begin. Well, I mean, to be fair, with the Burns Institute, James did have the opposite. Like he'd been a kid's lawyer for years and years and years and was like, I can't keep suing these institutions for torturing children. It's not working. How do I make sure that the kids never get in the system? And that's when data became part of it. And I think because that was my first startup, that was the first thing I saw. I'm really indebted to James for showing me the power of data we didn't really have technology then. Like some of our data crunching was like in a basement of a probation office, like with one of the calculators that had like the paper ticker tape on it. <laughs> um, it wasn't always tech, but you know, that's tech. That's how it started. How did you meet James? And what, what was he like? Or what is he like? He's amazing. Uh, I met James because I got the job off of Craigslist to be his legal secretary at an organization called the Youth Law Center. I was a terrible secretary because of the impatience I mentioned earlier. I was really, really bad at it. Um, but James was doing this thing and he was like, I have this idea. Would you want like, would you want to hang out with me and do it? And um, what neither of us knew is that I was 22 years old. I had no business being in the meetings that he let me be in, but he needed to like show up like he had a team. And so I would go to these meetings with him and I got to be there as he was creating an organization. And I got a no low book which is like nonprofits for dummies. It came with a CD-ROM. The CD-ROM had all the papers on it that you would need to file to become a nonprofit. So I just like did it. And I didn't know that that's not how people normally did things. And I think because of my dad, I was like, oh, you just do this stuff. Like you want to start a business, you just do it. Like you get a bank account, you call a lawyer. You like, it's not that big a deal. So I learned a ton. And eventually we hired in real people who knew what they were really doing. And yeah, and then I went to grad school. <laughs> 
I, th- I think you just summed up the journey of a startup founder, basically. Yeah. <laughs> we just sort of then. did it. We didn't know what we were doing. And then eventually we brought somebody in who understood things. Some real people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Let's circle back. Um, I want to talk more about the Hayward Burns Institute. Can you talk briefly about what that is and you know, how you saw it evolve over the years and what you learned from that experience? The W. Haywood Burns Institute works on disproportionate minority confinement. So that's the rate of children of color who are locked up for things that white kids don't get locked up for. Um, It started in 2001. So at the time, I I don't think most people knew. Most people, uh, if you come from communities of color, you certainly know that your kids were getting locked up and other kids were not. Uh, If you come from a majority white community, maybe you didn't know what it looked like inside juvenile halls and juvenile probation systems. Um, But it's atrocious uh, and it continues to be so. That hasn't improved that much. But the Burns Institute works with district attorneys and public defenders and judges and probation offices to figure out what you could do to reduce the rates. And sometimes you didn't need a policy change. Sometimes you just needed a practice change. Like something as simple as moving the court time from a time in which the kids who have to get there from communities of color that are often pretty far away from where the courthouse is, um, that they could get there in time without being late for court. That's a simple practice change. This doesn't require policy change and can reduce the rate of kids of color. That's an example that happened in Santa Cruz County. Today, the Burns Institute is in gosh, I don't know, but it's dozens of jurisdictions around the country and their work persists. One of the things I really learned from the Burns Institute was the importance of including community voices in the practice changes you were seeking. So part of the Burns Institute is an organization called the Community Justice Network for Youth, CJNY. And uh, it was they provided training and support and love for community organizers who were doing the really, really hard stuff of helping kids as they come out of systems, helping kids before they get into systems and holding stakeholders, public stakeholders accountable for how they were treating kids of color differently. And Burns Institute wouldn't work without that two-pronged approach, like working at the policy and practice level, as well as working with community leaders to ensure that what they wanted was happening. Were you guys mostly grant funded or were there, was there a grassroots component to it at all? Well, I should say, so we were mostly grant funded, but uh, we did have an earned revenue model, which was kind of unheard of in those days as well. So uh, we were paid by jurisdictions to improve their practices, which might sound a little surprising, except that there was a federal requirement to do so. Uh, and so they were doing it not to get sued. <laughs> that makes any sales job a little bit easier. Um, so there was an earned revenue model, but it was... Um, it was seed funded by Inka Muhammad, who at the time was at the Ford Foundation. Got it. How important was that fee-for-service revenue to the organization? I'm just, I'm just curious. Important. That's an interesting word. So I would say that the fee-for-service revenue grew over time. So as a, from an organizational structure, it wasn't that significant in the mid, in the beginning, and it became more significant. But I think what is most important about it, to use your word, is that it meant that jurisdictions had skin in the game. If you were working with, say, San Francisco County and they were paying for the services, they probably were going to enact the practices that you recommended because they were paid to told how to enact the practices. They were you were the consultant coming in. Yeah, you wouldn't hire McKinsey and then not apply any of the things they told you to do. Uh, So it was important for that reason. I mean, you literally had buy in. Yeah. 
literally. Interesting. <laughs> that makes a big difference in what you're able to pull off. And that, to James's credit, was part of the vision. Mm. So then you went to grad school yeah. uh, after this. And why, why women's studies? I'm curious. Or gender studies. Sorry. Because I was like a feminist organizer. And uh, <laughs> even at Burns Institute, I worked, I got to spend a lot of my time on girls' issues within facilities, which was particularly important to me. So that's what I did. How did that experience shape your later choices? Were there like a few things that you picked up during that uh, coursework that you might not have with a different area of focus that you really applied to your, uh, to your career after leaving? Well, I was at the London School of Economics, which uh, most people who are in their grad programs are not from the UK or the US. They're primarily from other places outside. And uh, so I learned a ton. Like uh, I had a classmate who he was the Ministry of Manufacturing for uh, Pakistan and he was in the gender and social policy program because many, many of their manufacturing workers are women, particularly in the garment industry. And so that's what he was studying. And I just learned a ton from his perspective. And I learned um, from a lot of my classmates on what was happening from policy perspective to women in their countries and what could or felt like could be changed easily and what like may never be changed. Uh, and it impacted my next career because when I was coming out, there was a new organization that was getting started uh, called Spark and it was a grassroots women's fund and they funded globally. So I, you know, in this graduate experience, I'd had all this exposure to grassroots women's organizations around the world. And I'd had that Spark startup experience with Burns Institute. So Spark felt like a perfect marriage of the two things. I don't think we did this, but give, give me the one liner of like, what is it and, and why it exists? It is a network of millennial philanthropists, both men and women and binary folks who invest in grassroots organizations that are working on gender equity because it matters to all of us. How did you find Spark? Like what, what you know, take, take me through like discovering them to deciding that uh, you wanted to work there and, and uh, you know, be part of the founding team. So I found them through a friend, like a friend had Spark when I found them was like a PayPal account and an email list of a hundred people. So I had a friend who was on that email list of a hundred people. And when I was looking for something, she said, you know, like you should check this out. It feels like it's aligned with all of the things that you're interested in. I interviewed for the job and I interviewed for a long time. They wanted somebody else. They wanted somebody who had uh, fundraising experience, like real fundraising experience, because uh, I'd only written grants with the Burns Institute. And they wanted somebody who'd been an executive director before a, a nonprofit CEO. And I definitely didn't have that. And so they didn't get their first, I think, two choices. And then they got me. And it turns out we were like at the right stage for each other, me and Spark. Because <laughs> I didn't know how to fundraise and I had to learn it on the fly. And Spark didn't have a business model. So, like, I got to practice fundraising with all different kinds of verticals. And it was, in many ways, an early stage tech nonprofit because we did all of our grant making on a wiki. We had this email list and a PayPal account. And none of the funders I talked to understood what we were trying to do. To put it in context, it was, you know, 2007. GoFundMe, like crowdfunding organizations wouldn't even be created until like 2006. So crowdfunding as a word didn't really exist. So this idea that we were going to get small donations from thousands of people and that would be a long tail investment in a grant making cycle just seemed bananas. Uh, but we worked on it and we got there and it, and it ended up becoming the largest network of millennial philanthropists ever. 
which is cool. And I just learned everything. <laughs> Some things I had to relearn that I learned at Bruce Institute, I had to relearn and learn again. And so many of the lessons we teach our entrepreneurs at Fast Forward come from my experience at Spark. So you just you just breezed through something I want to talk a little bit about and, and deconstruct. So th this whole crowdfunding thing was this like was this your idea or did it you know, was there like a mandate that hey this organization wants to have micro donations from a large number of people like where did where did that desire come from within the organization? No, we didn't want to start with small donations. We wanted big gifts. Like we wanted in our dream institutional philanthropists would be like, oh, gosh, I wonder what young people think about something. We'll just give them some money and then let's see how they give it away. That was like the dream. Turns out that was a really unrealistic dream. Nobody cares what, even today, like people don't care what young people think about philanthropy. Like <laughs> kids have to fight for it for themselves. They're clawing at it. Each generation is really invested in their own ideas about what should happen and why. So nobody wanted that. Um, we had always had a membership model. And uh, the price changed over the years, but at first it was 50 bucks and then it was a hundred bucks. And then we went down to 25 bucks. And actually that was the ticket. As soon as we went down to 25 bucks, we had thousands of people and not hundreds. And we used those monies to make grants out of it. I think the timing is important because it was also, uh, I was hired in September of 2007. So 2008 hit pretty early into my tenure and everything fell apart right? Like most of our members lost their jobs. Millennials were really hard hit in the recession and foundations panicked that they were going to lose their corpus. So they like pulled back from grant making aggressively. Uh, and we had to get really creative in, and organizations needed more money more than ever because grassroots organizations were experiencing all of the constraint that we were. So we had to get really creative and we did. And it turned out to be this powerful engine for change. And I, we certainly influenced organizations within the women's uh, funding community. I think we or influenced some other philanthropic communities as well. And we were able to deploy a lot of money in the end. What is the value of crowdfunding? Is it purely those donations? How should organizations think about crowdfunding? What does it do? What can it do for an organization? What did it do for Spark? So crowdfunding is really only powerful in the aggregate. Like your $25 is not going to make a demonstrable difference to whatever cause you're giving to. It's 25 bucks. But $2,500, $25,000, $250,000, as the crowd gets bigger, that money matters more because it has more influence. But more importantly, it shows that there are thousands of people who care about this thing. So the power is in the aggregate. Uh, you know, we often have teams at Fast Forward who the first money came through crowdfunding. And what those founders will tell you, and they will tell you it over and over again, that like, it wasn't the $25,000 I raised that was exciting, is that there were a thousand people who believed my idea mattered. And the power of that is the juice that keeps you going. So at Spark, whether I'm early to things, and that's part of my problem, or uh, I cause it, we'll see. But like feminist was a bad word when we started Spark. Nobody wanted to be identified as a feminist except for me. The whole board was like, oh, God, no. Like, listen, up. I don't want that word anywhere near my website. And over time, the meaning of the word shifted. Like not the practice of being a feminist. That was always like true. But it had less of a sting to it. 
And so people were able to embrace it and get excited about it. And I think, again, that was the power of the aggregate. When it wasn't 100 people on an email list, but 10,000 people on an email list, suddenly like you didn't feel so weird because you had these feelings and values and political beliefs that were different than those around you because you had more people around you. Is that just a feel-good thing uh, and an audience or, or did you leverage those small donors? Like it strikes me that especially in movement building, grassroots organizing, as valuable as the dollar amount that they're giving is the ability to engage those people to activism or volunteering or, or to use the human capital that results from crowdfunding to help achieve your mission. Did you find that to be true or? It was a crowdfunded model, but it was also a participatory grant making model. So we made the members make decisions about it. Um, and people often talk about that process as like one of the best personal and professional development moments of their life. Because one, you have to get out in front of hundreds and hundreds of people and talk about why you think this grant should go to this place. Then you have to argue against other people. You also have to like, if you wanted more votes for your issue, you had to go get people in the room to get excited about it. Sometimes you could get a matching gift from your corporation and you would just, your corporation would see what you were doing in your outside life. The process of engaging in it was as valuable for the members as it was for the grantees, I think. And it had lasting impact. Like we, you know, one year we funded uh, homeless prenatal. It was homeless prenatal. We funded an organization that was working on prenatal rights for homeless women. We talked a lot about uh, what maternity leave means. And like, if you have an hourly job and you don't have access to any of these things, what that looks like, it inspired one of the members to go to her large at that time tech corporation and influence them to change their maternity policy for their hourly wage workers. The grant we gave was like 10,000 bucks. The impact ended up being far greater than one of the $10,000. And that's because of the participatory process. What was the process for creating those grant decisions? Uh, it was a wiki. We had like a, like a wiki whiteboard and you put your name uh, or your number, we did it different times, different ways, uh, on a scale of one to 10 and where you wanted it to go. Was that just staff or was it like the donors? And any member, any member could vote. And it didn't matter if you were a $25,000 member or a $25 member. You had the same power. What is the legacy of Spark, do you think? I'm curious, you know, as you guys engaged this mass of, of grassroots donors and activists, do you, do you know like what they got from the program? Like what, from their participation with Spark, like what they, how, if or how it influenced their lives, inspired them, what they might've gone on to do as a result of? I, I mean, I think this is particularly true when you do philanthropy at a younger age, younger mm. being like 20s to 30s, that um, it was a part of all these people's lives. So it ended up some people changing career paths, some people influencing their companies, people getting married and having babies, uh, like all kinds of things happen. All the things that happen in that moment in your life happened through Spark often. When did you know it was time to move on? And, and how did you go about making that decision? The other half of Spark, it was a real slog. Like, <laughs> we nothing came easy. Nothing came easy at Spark. We, like, didn't really have any lucky breaks. Uh, that's not true. We had a couple lucky breaks. But, like, nothing flowed, to use tech bro term. Uh, we were just never in the flow. It was a struggle. <laughs> uh, we learned everything the hard way. Sometimes we had to learn it twice. Um, and so it was really hard. And my personal goal was that if I was going to like give this much of myself to something, when I left it, it would be stable. 
So like I wanted to make sure the organization had a year's worth of cash in the bank, which for an organization of that size is like kind of insane, but that was just, that is what I desperately wanted. And I wanted, um, one of the things I got us to do in the early days was not just fund globally, but also fund locally. Cause what I found was in the participatory grant making process, some of the members thought things only happened in other places like human trafficking or um, a number of really uh, water rights issues and things like that that impact women differently. Uh, and so I really wanted the U.S. part of our portfolio to be an important value. So we would fund globally and locally every time we worked on a theme. And so that was up and running. We had enough money. We had staff. I felt like it was stable and I could leave. Were you just itching to get out? Did you need a break? Did you feel like you needed to push yourself more at all? Or kind of what was, on a personal level, what was the impetus for you to start looking beyond? It had been seven years and I was kind of, I was tired. I was ready for the next challenge. And then Kevin found me like right at the end. And so I had this like six month overlap that was a little bananas, but um, Kevin had this idea and I was like, damn, that sounds like so fun. I like, that's that sounds like really a good time. Uh, and so I went and hung out with him and we pulled off fast forward. And fast forward has been really lucky a number of times. So um, I'm so grateful. For the Spark experience also, because now when like fast forward has a lucky moment, I'm like, dang, this never happened before. This is great. Give us your version of how fast forward started. You know, the one and only Kevin Barenblatt, such a special human. Uh, Kevin Barenblatt is a tech guy. He probably wouldn't like that number. He is an engineer by trade and he never dreamed of being an ad optimizer, which is kind of what his company became once it sold. Like it had several iterations, several pivots, and he was ad optimizing and that just didn't speak to his heart. And so once he sold his company, he went on what I lovingly refer to as a philanthropic walkabout. He was like, okay, like I'm an engineer in the world. What do I do? How do I get back? Like, I know I want to do good, but I have no idea what that means or... Um, and so he came up with this idea for a nonprofit accelerator for tech nonprofits. Uh, and he pitched it for a year. And everybody he was talking to was like, yeah, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> don't, don't do that. And then we have a mutual friend who invited us to an event. And we sat next to each other at the event. She was like, you guys need to talk. Shannon is in a transition moment and Kevin's been transitioning for a year, like just figure it out. Uh, and he pitched the idea to me and I thought it was great. And I was the first person who was excited about this idea. And so he was like, okay, I got one. And we started hanging out in coffee shops. Um, and what I loved about the idea is it's all the stuff I wished I had when we were starting Spark. Like I desperately wanted community. I wanted more insight into how to run these things and how to make it work efficiently. Um, I wanted someone to teach me how to fundraise. I wanted someone to teach me how to pitch. And I just had to learn everything the hard way at Spark. And if we could speed up that process for other founders, I thought we would get to more good faster. Uh, and Kevin and I sort of brought our two worlds, even though we'd both been in the Bay Area at that point for a couple decades, our worlds were very different. Like he operated in the tech startup Silicon Valley part of the Bay. And I was like in the activist artist part of the Bay. And like those groups don't hang out. Uh, and so we basically brought our people together. And really in the beginning, it was our people. 
you mean like roommates and ex-boyfriends and former employees like okay you just mentor these teams we'll work it out uh and it just it really was magic we were we found five teams which we didn't know that we would do we were able to help them raise money and get visibility and develop as organizations uh and there was something very special about the merged worlds that at the end of the year we thought it would be an experiment. We do it for one year. And if it didn't work, that would be fine. We'd go our ways. And it just worked great. So, it, uh, you know, we're in our eighth class right now. It's amazing how things move differently when they're aligned. Yeah. You get into, the, into that flow, as you said. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's sort of the central thesis of, of Fast Forward and, and how, you know, n- now there are a few different accelerator incubator programs for mm-hmm. nonprofits. You know, what makes what makes Fast Forward special and unique? We want to see the best tech applied to our biggest social problems. And we fundamentally believe that startups are uniquely positioned to build the tools they're going to solve these problems. There's something special about startups. And we look for founders with lived experience with the problem because they understand the problem certainly better than uh, we do. Certainly better often than large institutions that maybe... uh, think they could build an app and solve everything. So that's who we invest in. Um, And I think what's special about Fast Forward is our singular focus on tech nonprofits. There are, as you say, now accelerators for nonprofit startups, which is awesome. Uh, They tend to be leadership development programs, also awesome, right? Like working on developing these founders into becoming movement leaders in really powerful and important ways. They often don't focus on the tech which uh, we spend a lot of time in working with tech nonprofits because uh, they're in this unique moment or position rather. Tech nonprofits are in this unique position where it's like everything that's hard about a nonprofit and everything that's hard about a tech startup at the same time. And the ecosystem of support hasn't like fully matured yet. So there, there are now some funders that like invest in tech nonprofits. That wasn't true eight years ago. There are now some press outlets that are comfortable covering tech nonprofits. That also wasn't true eight years ago. Uh, there are now like conferences and gatherings for tech nonprofits. That wasn't true before, but uh, it needs to be more robust if we're gonna have more Wikipedias and Khan Academies in the world. What do you, besides the focus on tech and, and having some lived experience, you know, what are some of the things that you look for in a founder that you want to include in the programs? I mean, those two things are really important, right? So um, we look first at the founder. Do they understand the problem? Is it like burning a hole in their heart? They have to fix it. Uh, you know, you and I were talking, like we just went through this application pool. And last year when we went in during the same time, there were tons of applicants that built like an emergency COVID response relief thing. And we looked for those organizations again this year and many of them shut their doors because it was like a flash in a pan moment. They weren't committed to the long haul. So once it got hard, they quit. If a founder has lived experience, like they're going to do whatever they have to do to solve the problem. And often they're not as committed to the solution, like the cool tech thing that they built, than they are to solving the problem. And like for us, that's a sweet spot of a founder. Also, the tech has to be the main thing. Like, uh, you know, today Spark wouldn't count. Like just using a wiki to do your work is not a tech nonprofit. Like it needs to have tech at the core of the impact model um, because everything else changes when that is how it works. Um, And then we look for other things that I think other early stage investors and funders look for. 
Like we look for grit, we look for understanding, we look for the solution size, like how big is the market and how are you thinking about your go-to-market strategy to address it? And then we choose, like we're sector agnostic, but we choose. So we tend to choose organizations that are like steeped in social justice. What's my journey as a member of the incubator and what sort of services does Fast Forward provide? We give money to the teams. Uh, We give them access to mentors, like tech mentors and philanthropic mentors to help them build out. We spend a lot of time in one-on-one coaching to help them get to where they need to be. And then we have a community of other founders. And in the beginning, we thought what tech nonprofits would want most is the money and then the connections and then the community. But it turns out the thing that they like best is inverse. They love the community of other founders and having someone like force them into a room, right? Founders are busy. If you can't create opportunities for them to engage and be with one another, they probably wouldn't do it. And so if you facilitate that community, it's really helpful in who both the founders and their organizations become. The access to connections is really important. You know, in the first year, all five groups, but one um, were from the Bay Area because that's where we are. And probably the group that might've gotten the most out of that year was the group that was from Chicago because you got to go home and say, yo, I was in a Silicon Valley accelerator. I know all the things now. Uh, And that really helped. Uh, He also like knew all the people in Chicago, right? He'd like gone through all those potential funders and they hadn't, some of them had bitten, but most hadn't. So he needed the signal that he'd been in a Silicon Valley accelerator. And now uh, we have lots of international teams and folks from other places mostly, and it really does help. And then having connections to all the tech companies out here makes a big difference too. So I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, how this is is grounded. And even though you're doing tech solutions primarily, like the real, you know, what's your take on how these solutions really are important to people's real lives and grounded in, you know, sort of the, the gritty truth? No, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. So in part of Fast Forward's story, right, is Kevin in his walkabout year was an entrepreneur in residence at a venture capital firm. And he would meet all of these founders who built like really great products looking for a problem. And it just drove him crazy. Like we have a lot of problems. Where are the people who are looking at the problem and then building the thing to solve it? And that is one of... The very exciting things about fast forward, working on Fast Forward is because the founders are so committed to the problem that the way they solve it could change over time, right? They often don't build something right away. So an example would be um, we recently spoke to a team called Asset Hub. And Asset Hub was founded by somebody who works in a mayor's office, in the Oakland mayor's office. And she started noticing that her constituents uh, were going to Reddit to navigate public benefits in Oakland. Reddit is the worst place to navigate almost anything, right? Like (laughs) you should not be going to Reddit to solve your problems. I'm just gonna tell you that right now. Like that, nobody on Reddit really knows and they talk a lot. It's just, it's a problematic platform and it's certainly a problem if you're trying to navigate public benefits. So she is creating a tech nonprofit that will address it. And they've started with a type form. Turns out type forms are really helpful to figure out what people are looking for, and then they help you navigate it. It will become a community in which uh, people can get their questions answered and help them figure out how to get the things that they need most. One of our founders is named Michelle Brown. 
Michelle Brown was a reading teacher in rural Mississippi, and her classroom had no books. She's a reading teacher. Her classroom had no books. She could get worksheets. She could print them out, but uh, no books for her kids. And she had a dozen reading levels across the classroom. So like buying one or two books for the classroom from her teacher salary, like wasn't going to cut it. So she took um, her wedding presents and sold them and used the money from that to create the first version of Common Lit. And Common Lit today serves 20 million students. It's a completely free literacy platform. The curricula is developed by reading teachers and they create great content that kids are excited about. There are digital platforms for reading, but they're not free. In fact, they charge school districts a lot of money to have access to those platforms. So if you're in rural Mississippi, you could never afford to use any of those. Michelle and Commonlit are solving a problem that a market will never solve. And that's like a perfect space for a tech nonprofit, a complete market failure. Yeah. Finding these important challenges that are in the gaps of what the government will provide and the, uh, the for-profit sector is able to do. And actually, like that's what philanthropy should be doing. Philanthropy is the ultimate risk capital, and we never treat it that way. The money has been spent. It's not coming back. <laughs> so you should spend it on something fantastic, like a dream that you hadn't imagined that wouldn't exist in the world without it. Because if it turns out digital literacy platforms should always be free and commonly can influence that, like that's going to be a good thing for the world. How is Fast Forward funded? Fast Forward is funded primarily through corporate partners. We work really closely with tech companies to invest in us and invest in our founders and help bring in mentors and volunteers to the program. We additionally get funding from institutional funders that are interested in tech innovation and uh, a number of individual donors that are excited about tech nonprofits. When you partner with some of these corporations, are they looking at this as pure philanthropic CSR dollars or are they looking for some kind of return. I mean, we often talk about like, you know, what benefit they might have for, from graduates working with them, et cetera. Like what, are, what is that conversation like and what are they looking for from their participation in Fast Forward? Initially, it was pure philanthropy. These are cool tech products. They're using new use cases, cool founders, like let's invest in them. Over the years, what's been really exciting is our tech founders are customers of many of these tech companies. All of my teams use Google. All of my teams use Twilio. They all use these products that the tech companies are making. So uh, it ends up being a like more even relationship because as they are beneficiaries, but they're also customers and the tech companies are seeing their products in new environments and with new use cases, they tend to be great customer stories. Uh, so it becomes this really yeah beautiful relationship between the tech companies and these new tech founders. Have you had to work to find that kind of alignment or did it sort of emerge organically? Yeah, no, we had no idea. In fact, it took me like three years to realize what was going on. For all my impatience, I was real slow on that one. Uh, yeah. So Google supported us our first year and they were incredible and they gave us money and they gave us mentors and they gave us volunteers. They even gave us space to hang out in and it was great. And then uh, somebody from BlackRock came to our first demo day and was like, you should bring this to our office. I was like, okay, cool. And so the next year we had Google and BlackRock. And then a third year, Comcast was like, oh my gosh, we have so many engineers who work at Comcast who would like love to meet these founders. Could you bring this to our office? And it was that third year. I was like, oh, oh, Nelly, like maybe this is our business model. 
<laughs> yeah, it was a little slow on the uptick. So we talked about a couple of the organizations, which I'm, I'm thrilled about. And uh, I interviewed, uh, as I mentioned, Lisa Wong from Almost Fun and Karen Underwood from Coach Me. And they're, they're coming up uh, in future episodes here. Great. And I'm sure you love, you know, it goes without saying you love all your incubies. They're my babies. The same. Yeah. They're, you love all your children the same. But, you know, what are some good ones to watch? Yeah, well, we had a big week this week because Fast Company covered uh, two of our organizations as the most innovative ideas. Upsolve being one, we talked about them briefly. Uh, Upsolve helps low-income folks file for bankruptcy. Uh, and within really two years, it's become the single largest provider of digital legal aid, which is incredible, right? And they're looking at other legal problems that they can address using the same tool. So that's very exciting. Another organization that is near and dear to my heart that Fast Company covered is called Emilio. Emilio makes it possible for incarcerated people to be communicate with their loved ones via letters and video. I think one of the things that has been just profoundly sad in this year of the pandemic is that so many people who are inside have not been able to be in contact with their loved ones. And um, Emilio has been a lifeline to those families and their communities. And, uh, you know, they're doing great. They, when we met them, they had like a couple of users and now they're in several states and they're really thriving. And they're looking at a suite of products that they could build out to make it easier to be connected to people you love. Startups are like sausages, right? Nobody wants to see how they're made. <laughs> but, it was a little messy. Yeah, uh, you know, are there, are there setbacks? Are there, you know, what, what were you surprised by in a good way or bad way as you built fast forward? I'm surprised that there aren't dozens of tech nonprofit accelerators at this point, honestly. They should exist in every vertical, in part because of the alignment of the investors, philanthropic investors to the issue area. And that just hasn't happened yet. And I, it's partly because philanthropy is slow, painfully slow. But I, what I'm really interested in this year is in 2021, because 2020 turned out the tech nonprofits were the social safety net for many communities. Like if your school was closed, common lit was your classroom. If your uh, if you couldn't get access to your doctor, you could go through teletherapy or telemedicine for one of our providers. It became the resource that when markets failed, and didn't have a response for this, that tech nonprofits were able to step up. So I'm really interested to see if sort of this crisis inspires people to think about tech interventions differently. Fast forward five years from now, what, what's, the, what's the place of tech nonprofits in the ecosystem, do you think? I mean, I think a couple of like uh, commingled trends. One, it's like computing power is getting real cheap. Right. So, you know, a couple of years ago, we had a tech nonprofit that built her product uh, for 5,000 bucks. It's called Talking Points. She paired Google Translate with Twilio to allow non English speaking parents to communicate with their kid's teacher. It was, was $5,000 and she took it out of her student loan. Like today, especially during stay in place, Talking Points was used throughout the, like, Thousands and thousands of families, hundreds of thousands of families were using talking points to communicate with their kids' teacher. Uh, and we're just going to see more of those. So as computing costs have gone down, you won't even need 5,000 bucks, right? You're going to need like a couple hundred bucks to test out your idea. And that's pretty exciting to me. 
also, I feel like as phones are ubiquitous at the moment, right? But as connectivity gets better, we're going to see like really interesting use cases for 5G and interesting use cases for new types of mobile technology because it'll just be cheaper. So many of our teams right now are sort of type form and SMS, like it's pretty basic technology uh, that as things get cheaper, it'll be easier to apply things to bigger use cases. Like imagine using 5G to show your doctor what's going on on your body, right? Like it's going to change who gets to access healthcare significantly. You've said this in a few different ways. What is it that you really love about entrepreneurship? I love two things about it. I love making sense out of chaos. Like that's deeply satisfying to me. I also love the fundamental hopefulness of it. That there is a better way and all it needs is this idea applied to it. And we're going to make meaningful change. Like it's fun to show up with that as your framework. You seem to have a very strong sense of uh, self-efficacy. The idea that there can be a problem out there and you can step up and do something about it. We would call that ego. Well, um, sure. <laughs> um, sure, I have a very strong ego. Um, mostly, I feel like, how could I not try? Is that a responsibility? Yeah, what are we doing if we're not trying? Actually, not trying would be the worst. Failing, who, like, whatever, people fail. It's not the biggest deal. Uh, I've certainly failed. If you don't try, and especially if you think it could be better and you have an idea about how it could be better and you don't try, like, what a waste. Yeah. So maybe it's responsibility. Maybe, I mean, it's probably responsibility, ego, and hopefulness all wrapped in one. So what, what advice would you give to somebody then who's either on the precipice, like they, they've seen something and they're like, I don't know if I can do anything here, or, or maybe they've started to take those first steps. Like, you know, what advice would you give to somebody at the beginning of this journey uh, to encourage them? Or, in fact, we say this to entrepreneurs all the time. Like we meet these entrepreneurs, they really understand the problem. They have an idea to solve it and then they haven't built anything. And what we tell them is like, you actually have to build it. And it seems, but like, it has to be in people's hands. You have to see how they use it and then know that what you built, they'll never use. Like it's going to be the next thing that you built. You just have to get things into people's hands. And that can feel like really scary. But uh, the good thing is that it's not going to be the it's not going to be the end product. It's just going to be the first thing they use. We often find that founders want to have every idea in their first product, like every single bell and whistle, and that's really hard to pull off. And it's going to take too long, and you could build the wrong thing, right? So you just have to start. Don't worry that it's a half baked idea. Most of the good ones are. You can't no. bake it until you've had somebody else taste the batter. Good is the enemy of great, but great is the enemy of good, right? Yeah, just get it out there. It'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. You've had a you've had a few different chapters in your career, uh, as have mm-hmm. I. I love the meandering journey, but uh, and I suspect you'll have more, you know, more acts to come. But uh, as of now, you know, what's what's the path not taken? If, if you were if you were to do something other than your current career path, what would it be? Somebody asked me this as I was leaving Spark. And my reaction, and I think it's still true, is like whatever my next job is going to be hasn't been created yet, which is true. Like uh, working on a tech nonprofit accelerator hadn't been created. Like tech nonprofits weren't a thing. Like it hadn't been created yet. So I think whatever it's going to be, it doesn't exist in the moment. And like, that's kind of cool, right? Like we're just going to figure it out as we go along. One of the issues of the tech nonprofits of the nonprofit space in the moment is this like idea of 10 years plans, these idea of like these long term strategic goals. Like 
the whole world will be different in 10 years. So the thing that I will be doesn't exist yet, but we'll, I'll make it up. What's next for you and for Fast Forward? Yeah, at Fast Forward, we're in this pretty interesting moment in that we've been at it. We're, at, we're about to accept our eighth cohort. And so in startup cycles, like 10 years is a sort of like magical thing. Like you will see which in your portfolio succeeded, which failed. You'll learn a lot about your investment thesis. Was it right or was it wrong? Like what happened? And so as we're sort of coming into that era for us, we're thinking about like, how do you support our breakout stars to really scale to profound levels? And we're starting to build like a series of products and programs to support that community. In the last three years, we've been working on products and programs to help build the pipeline, to help get more people starting tech nonprofits. So we basically opened up all of our curricula. You don't have to go to the accelerator anymore. We now have a playbook where you can learn all the things that we teach in the accelerator. It's on our website. It's called The Playbook. Uh, We recently launched an academy series in which we brought experts from each area covered in the playbook to come and talk about what they know and why it's important. It's like a mini startup school. It went really, really well. We had thousands of people from all over the world participate. And my hope is that those seeds become tech nonprofits that we see down the road. As we built in the early stage of tech nonprofits, we're now looking to scale stage. And like, how do we make some of these groups that we made earlier investments in household names? You and and fast forward are, are especially interested in social justice. You talked about you know even self care uh, to an extent, but outside of what you're currently working on, what do you feel is the most important cause uh, humanity can tackle right now, and why? You know, uh, personally, I'm deeply concerned about like that these might be the last stages of democracy. I feel like we're seeing that across the globe, and I'm deeply concerned about what will happen if uh, pillars of democracy crumble. And what that means. And like, I don't know, a tech product is not going to solve that problem. Some of the things I've gotten really, really good at at Fast Forward is helping people tell their story, helping people pitch, helping people raise money, helping them get visibility, and just basically giving people shortcuts to get there. So I feel like the best thing I can move add to the global democracy and human rights movement is helping people do those things. So I train human rights activists. I train democracy activists. Um, that's like mostly what I fundraise for these days outside of fast forward. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about how you advance the crisis of democracy. When you're, you know, at the end of your career, you're, you're ready to do your own walkabout, um, travel the world or whatnot. Uh, you know, what, what would you like to have accomplished with your career? I, I know you've done a lot of different things, but if there's sort of one or two things that you want to look back and, and feel like it was time well spent, you know, what would those be? I'm a big believer in post-its. And we have at fast forward over the years, we have like the post-it wall of dreams. And like, if we have an idea or a product or a program that we're thinking about, you just write it down on the post-it and you put it on the wall. And, you know, sometimes it's the law of attraction. Sometimes you're in a conversation someone's like, what's new? What are you working on? And you like, pulled out a post-it and was like, well, this thing I could work on if you help me do it. That's what happened. So uh, 1 billion is on a post-it because as of today, we've helped serve 88 million. And I want that to be a billion in 10 years. All right. So, you know, somebody wants to join Fast Forward as, uh, you know, enter the accelerator program. Somebody wants to fund your work. How do they get involved? Come see us. Uh, if you want, if you're a tech nonprofit, 
reach out. We have a ton of products and services for organizations that do not go through our accelerator. Everything from like a weekly funding email with every opportunity in the space to a playbook and academy and events and supports that you could use. So come find us. It's ffwd.org. We run a summer accelerator and the applications are live uh, typically in February of each year. So come find us. We just closed this recent round, but uh, it'll happen again. We promise. And then if you're interested in supporting Fast Forward, come see me. Uh, you can find me. I'm all over the internet and at the Fast Forward website. Everything is open and accessible. So come hang out. It's Shannon at ffwd.org. Well, this has been a great conversation. I've really, I've enjoyed meeting you and getting to know you and learning some of your backstory. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you. After hearing Shannon speak, I'm sure you'll understand why Fast Forward is one of my favorite nonprofit accelerator programs. I hope you'll connect directly with Shannon and check out all the great work that she and her colleagues are doing. So far on Cause and Purpose, we've really been focusing on established leaders and more mature organizations. I'm sure it'll come as no surprise though, that in my heart of hearts, I'm truly drawn to startups and the joy that comes with the hard work, innovation and camaraderie inherent in launching a new venture. We'll still be featuring some great, well-established leaders here on the program, but we'll also be expanding our scope to include some amazing founders in the early phases of launching their organizations. Among our first startup episodes will be Karen Underwood from Verano Health and Lisa Wong from Almost Fun, two great organizations that just happen to be graduates from the Fast Forward program. So keep an eye out for those in the weeks ahead. Cause and Purpose is a production of Moonshot.co. On behalf of myself, Shannon, and our entire team, thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch up with you again soon.